Welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. I say, obviously, but while I was walking around Darling Harbor, I didn't make that jump from detachment to attachment or from separation to unity. My excuse is that I'm instantly hostile to anything even hinting at spirituality. I blame my departed mother, who would probably blame her departed mother, a paragon of enlightenment rationality. I admire my grandmother for moving from a Polish ghetto to the sunshine of secular life in California, but she remained forced into the roles of mother and housewife, neither of which she wanted. She made sure that all her daughters went to college, but I never saw her laughing or even smiling. What I did know that morning in Sydney was that, like Los Angeles and any other big city you can name, Sydney was saturated with dishonesty, not only in the superficial civilities of buyers talking with sellers, but with the imperial pretension of the money towers. I'm tempted to call them the Four Thieves. I could say the same thing almost anywhere, of course. We swim in lies, whether they are part of advertising or political seductions. We learn as children to let the lies wash over us, and as adults we find it convenient to use politer synonyms, as though someone who prevaricates or who is mendacious is more respectable than a liar. What I wanted now, I decided, was to find a place that was honest, or as honest as possible, a place where I wouldn't be distracted by a tube man. That's what they're called, those fan-driven air dancers. That's another name for them. The car dealers put out on the sidewalk to wave frantically. I'm embarrassed to say that I find it impossible not to look at them. I'm being played, of course, and I know it. I just can't ignore it. I thought I'd try Broken Hill, a town that in 1913 produced more lead and zinc than any other mining district on Earth. Broken Hill was also in second place worldwide that year for silver production. These rankings have not made Broken Hill a major tourist attraction, but for me, Broken Hill had the virtue, shared with every mining town, of not pretending or not pretending very much. Mining towns are strictly functional, or nearly so, which makes them honest, or nearly so. They're nearly as honest as railway tracks. No lipstick, no necktie, no fake smile. I have a short piece of rail on my desk, and half the reason I like it is that there's no such thing as a dishonest piece of rail. I could have flown nonstop to Broken Hill, which is about 600 miles west of Sydney, but just as I had once driven from Alice Springs north to Darwin, so now I flew to Adelaide. I'd never been there, and I thought I'd drive the three or four hundred miles northeasterly from there to Broken Hill. Adelaide City, I eventually discovered, is laid out as a perfect rectangle with mostly gridded streets, many only 15 feet wide. There's a central plaza, complemented by small parks at the exact center of each quarter of the grid. The entire rectangle is wrapped by a muff of park half a mile wide. It sounds charming, but it's too Victorian to be beautiful, too strangled by the quest for propriety. Still, compared to the suburbs of Phoenix, it's a triumph. For this we can thank Richard Light, 
South Australia's first Surveyor General. He laid out the town plan in 1837 and named it for Adelaide, the wife of King William IV. The king died that year, and all his children with Adelaide had died young. Sir William was succeeded by his niece, Victoria. Adelaide survived as dowager for a dozen years, but never visited Australia. The trouble is that Adelaide City, with 20,000 people, is lost in metropolitan Adelaide, which has well over a million. Light's city is so lost in urban sprawl that a visitor could easily come and go without ever discovering its existence. That's what happened to me. I did discover it on my way home, but my first impression of Adelaide was a dark garage with the vaguely threatening sound of tires squealing on concrete. I rented a car, did my own squealing, and then found myself surrounded by commuters heading home. They boxed me in for an hour as I found a path through a network of crowded arterials with lots of traffic lights. About halfway to the northern outskirts of the metro, I bailed at one of the apartment hotels common in Australia. They're spacious and functional, but so sterile that guests feel like an invading pathogen. The next morning, I made it to the northern edge of the metro, about 25 miles north of Light's Adelaide City. Those last miles were the usual mosaic of new boxes built by people hoping to make money, and old boxes whose owners are hoping to do the same thing by spending as little money as possible while their property appreciates. I kept my eyes on the road, not only to stay alive, but to avoid looking at what my father used to call direct. H.L. Mencken comes to mind particularly with his diatribe called The Libido for the Ugly. Mencken wasn't attacking strip malls and neighborhood shopping centers. His was a generic attack on the cultural landscape of the United States in the 1920s. But a century later, we still seem to lust after new commercial spaces. They're new, they're shiny, we hardly have to walk, and they're full of stuff we want. End story, until you think about our choosing to move from a world of infinite complexity into a world of parking places and air-conditioned barns with everything we need arranged predictably. I remember an urban developer who made a small lake near Oklahoma City. He hoped to get some restaurants around it and was reduced almost to tears when the architect for the chain restaurant that finally came to the site said he had to be in Kansas on Thursday. No time to adjust to the plans. The restaurant got built and it presents a blank wall to the lake. The good news for me was that Metro Adelaide yielded to four-wheel drive tractors pulling gangs of disc plows and raising storms of dust from huge fields. With five million acres devoted to wheat, South Australia is not far behind Kansas. I know that some people are bored or even annoyed when they have to stop at a grade crossing. Not me. I detest traffic lights, but will happily wait for a train to pass. I'm even sorry if I clear the track just before the train comes. As for big farm machines, my only objection is that, because they reduce the need for farm labor, they have killed thousands of towns born in the era of mussels. Whether in Australia or Kansas, or Uruguay or most of South Africa, very nearly the only man walking with his hand on a plow these days is a statue in a park. I'm not arguing in favor of farming with mules, but I would say a word in defense of those vanished or vanishing towns. 
I recently reread Huckleberry Finn and was upset to see Twain condemning the people living in the towns along the river. I love Mark Twain, especially his use of English, but were the people who lived along Mississippi really grotesques out of Goya? I think not, or at least I think they were no worse than people anywhere else. Just because famous writers beat this drum doesn't make it so. I was reminded of this literary calumny about 30 miles beyond the northern edge of metropolitan Adelaide. I had landed in Riverton, a town of a thousand people. That's half as many as Riverton had in 1930, and from this statistic alone I anticipated a wreck. The highway from Adelaide, the A32, is Riverton's main street, and it stretches for about a kilometer before reverting back to wheat. There is hardly any town east of the highway, because growth in that direction is blocked by a railway track. The last train left in 1988, but more than 30 years later the rusting rails are still in place, and the only road crossings are at the north and south ends of town. To the west, the town fills a street grid about five blocks long and three blocks deep. Farther west, you're back in wheat. Yet Riverton was not a wreck. It not only had a gas station, but a supermarket, a pharmacy, a bakery, a diner, and a pizzeria. It had a bank, a hardware store, a dress shop, a hairdresser, a real estate office, and two hotels, one mostly a pub. It had both an elementary and a high school, a post office, a police station, a public library, a lawn bowling club, and an art gallery. It had no chain stores except for the supermarket and bank. It had no shopping center in the American sense of a group of businesses leasing space in a building owned by an anonymous real estate investment trust a million miles away. How many towns of a thousand people in the United States have so much economic vitality? If I hadn't been blasting through, I would have stopped and asked for the recipe. I probably should have stopped. Americans, after all, have mostly abandoned the word community to politicians, activists, and real estate developers. Recognizing what people want, the developers draw up and the politicians approve plans for communities where residents enjoy curated amenities. Everybody knows it's a hustle. Riverton's railroad station was now a B&B, solidly built with two stories of locally quarried slate called bluestone, which, despite its name, weathers to rust or gray. Later, up in Broken Hill, I learned that the station had been the scene of several murders one day in 1921. Two blocks away, and back on the A32, the Hotel Central, built in 1908, had a bluestone facade fitted with an ornate two-story iron veranda and balcony. The building looked across the road to the Riverton Institute, built in 1879 as the original home of the town library. Like the hotel, the institute was a two-story stone cube, but its windows had true arches, and the building had a central balcony projecting from the upper floor, a fine place, a hundred years ago, for important visitors making a speech. About half a mile to the north, and just beyond the edge of town, the Holy Trinity Anglican Church, built in 1858, was hiding behind tall blue gums that didn't quite obscure a crenellated parapet atop a Norman tower. Best of all were the old bluestone bungalows along the highway or just off it, 
They had spacious verandas with sheet metal roofs rolled at the bottom edge in the curve that Australians call bull-nosed. The verandas overlooked well-tended and unfenced gardens, a sign of real community. The newer homes on the western edge of town devoted a large part of their facades to a one- or two-car garage, or at least to a carport, so much for the wisdom of the old stone bungalows, where parking was behind the house on the principle that houses are for people, not machines. The new homes had no porches either. Their absence was an indicator of air conditioning, but also of social cohesion in decline. With no porches came no gardens, except the kind euphemistically called xeriscapes. Ironically, these expanses of gravel were fenced with sheet metal or woven wire screens. Many newer houses had solar panels. People tell me I should put them on my house to save money and the planet. That's a powerful combination, but I balk at adding another stranger to my collection. Someday I may capitulate, but it will probably be because I've succumbed to the combined forces of bribery, I mean subsidies, and clever marketing. More dishonesty. I know I'm vulnerable to it. I recall an advertising executive who once said that people who eat grape nuts are eating advertising, and I like grape nuts. Riverton, as I say, had lost half its population, but 40 miles farther up the road, Burrah had lost 80% of its population, which had peaked at 5,000 in 1870. Burrah had been the home of the Monster Mine, which produced copper from 1845 to 1877. There's still a residual hole in the ground. It's shaped like a cucumber about a quarter mile long, with a background of gently rolling hills covered in grass and scattered acacias. The hole is obviously man-made because its sides are stepped in terraces, dropping about a hundred feet to a green pool. For a while, Burra was the chief supplier of copper to India. I myself have an old, very heavy, and almost spherical copper urn that I bought years ago in Delhi. I've never thought until now that all 20 pounds of it might have come from this hole in the ground. The monster mine was the chief property of the South Australian Mining Association. Shares in the company sold for five pounds in 1845 and 50 pounds three years later. At the peak, about 1870, they were worth over 300. During that period, the miners' wages were cut. The miners were mostly Welsh, and in 1848, they initiated Australia's first big industrial action. The strike was broken and work went on. The mine's managing director moved to Adelaide and went into politics. He was Henry Ayers, who had arrived from England in 1840 as a carpenter, worked for five years as a law clerk, then in 1845 joined the Mining Association. If his name sounds faintly familiar, it's probably because, until recently, it was applied to Australia's most famous natural feature, the mountain now called Uluru, but known among white folks from 1873 until 1993 as Ayers Rock. Still in his mid-thirties, Henry Ayers was elected to the Upper House of South Australia's State Parliament, and he spent the next 37 years there, including five short stints as the state's premier. At his death in 1897, he left behind a 40-room mansion at the northeast corner of the Adelaide City Grid. The architect was an Irish immigrant who had served as Richard Light's assistant on the survey of Adelaide City. 
I mention this because the house is available now as a wedding venue. My point is that money, no matter how brutally earned, acquires with age the patina of refinement. Don't believe me? Think of a donor wall in a hospital, museum, or college. The names at the top are either of pirates or of their genteel descendants. Burrah also lies just south of Goiter's Line. George Goiter was South Australia's Surveyor General for over 30 years in the late 19th century. Roughly parallel to the coast, Goiter's Line separates arable land on the south from rangeland on the north. The change is obvious on satellite images, where in spring the country north of Adelaide is green for 100 miles, until just past Burrah it changes to reddish-brown. You can continue a thousand miles, but you'll have trouble finding more cropland. Lacking satellites, George Goiter located his line the hard way by riding 2,000 miles on horseback. In 1872, he secured passage of the Waste Lands Alienation Act, which prohibited the establishment of farms north of the line. The rains were unusually good that year, and frustrated settlers excoriated Goiter as the king of the lands department. They succeeded in getting the legislation repealed. The result is still on display north of Goiter's Line, where I passed abandoned houses, built of cut stone blocks neatly put together. I took a picture of one such building with a semi-elliptical brick arch over the doorway. The roof is completely gone, and the surviving walls are losing blocks one at a time. Do you hear the ghost of George Goiter? It's muttering something like, damn fools. Goiter reminds me of John Wesley Powell, the explorer of the Grand Canyon, who was similarly frustrated in his effort to push Congress to change the public land laws of the United States so they would fit the arid West. North of Goiter's line, the real king is Atroplex, the humble but mighty salt bush. This shrub supports a South Australian sheep industry whose products, wool, sheep, lambs, are worth about a billion Australian dollars annually, about the same as the state's wheat crop. Australians don't eat much lamb or mutton these days. Annual consumption per capita has collapsed from 50 pounds in 1960 to less than one pound today. But there's always wool. There's also the Middle East, a big market for sheep shipped live every year for the great Islamic feasts. Conditions on the ships fearing the animals are appalling. North of Burrah, I passed a half dozen bands of sheep but there were no herders and no sheepdogs, just fenced saltbush and sheep looking for shade under occasional trees. I saw emus, too, sometimes solitary, but often in small groups. Emus don't eat saltbush, but they find plenty of bugs and acacia seeds. Unlike the sheep, the emus took off like overgrown roadrunners. And if you wonder what Australians eat today, the answer is chicken. The few settlements along the highway now were studies in desolation. There would be a gas station with an attached convenience store. A nearby trailer might be subdivided into rooms for a few workers, and a few trees would mark a designated rest area. Always there was ghost town detritus, scattered steel barrels and buckets, rusted cast iron stove tops, and truck tires worn down to their casings. I'm thinking of Yunta, population 85 and about a hundred miles north of Burra, The center of town was a BP gas station catering to the triple trailer rigs known in Australia as road trains. The tractors are usually fitted with six fuel tanks, 
each holding 100 gallons. And if that's not impressive, try this. The rigs have a weight limit of 200 tons. That's five times the weight limit on America's interstate highways. Stand with your hands in your pockets on the side of an Australian highway and a passing road train will take your hat off. In the heat, I craved something salty. I almost bought a bag of potato chips at the convenience store, but the clerk said I should try the chips, by which he meant french fries. I'm glad he did. The cook was a middle-aged woman who looked as though she had forgotten how to smile. I can imagine life out here doing that to a person, but this woman made superlative french fries, crisp on the outside and soft on the inside. I should have gone back inside to compliment her. Another 25 miles up the road, Manahill boasted an abandoned hotel and almost nothing else except a railroad station wondering when its town would arrive. Next to it, an old crane with a steel boom had been designed to rotate on a fixed base and hoist bales of wool onto rail cars. Rusted chains and cables were still linked to reduction gears and a hand crank, but South Australian railways hadn't come here for wool. It had come for Silverton and Broken Hill, towns another hundred miles to the northeast, and just across the border with New South Wales. That's where I was headed, too. Silverton, in the 1890s, had had 3,000 people, but when I saw it, the population had fallen to 50. The most interesting story in town was not the old schoolhouse, now a museum, not the old churches, one converted to a residence and the other reduced to foundations. Not the town's abandoned railroad, stripped of its rails, but still discernible from the slightly elevated roadbed winding through the salt bush. It wasn't even that parts of Mad Max 2 were filmed here. The most interesting story was that Mary Gilmore taught here for two years in the late 1880s. I don't know why she came. She already had a job teaching school 500 miles away in the farming town of Wagga Wagga. But she had a heart and a brain, and the mining camp radicalized her, as mining camps often do. She became the first woman to join the Australian Workers' Union. And she wrote for its newspaper, The Worker, until her politics grew too radical. No problem. Mary Gilmore moved over to the Communist Party and its paper, The Tribune. The amazing thing is that she appears today on the reverse of the Australian $10 bill. No American woman with Mary Gilmore's politics will ever appear on real money, green money. So much for thinking that Australians are just Americans who talk funny. <laughs>